0: politics 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 hello and welcome everybody to the politics 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 program on this Christmas Day 2019, you know, as I look out into the wilderness of Mansfield, Ohio, a battleground state in this current presidential race, I wonder but for one Christmas figure, no, it is not Santa Claus, nor his reindeer, or his elves, or Mrs. Claus, or Krampus, nor is it the more religious Jesus Christ, the three wise men, Mary, Joseph, or that miserly innkeeper that would not allow the struggling couple in. No, the person that I think about is Captain America. Why Captain America? Well, I'll tell you why Captain America, because what I wonder is when Captain America fell into that ice flow after World War II and then was left there before being unfrozen. I wonder what his news of the day looked like. Well, headline, I'm still frozen. Maybe, a, are there fish? Probably not fish. I think maybe a polar bear farted over my head. Like, what could the news possibly be for a frozen Captain America? Because that, friends, is the feeling that I feel right now. I would love to do a big old episode of this show for you. Oh, my God, would I? And we have a great interview for you. It's all about polling, internal polling, uh, poll methodology from somebody who has been on the front lines of it. But other than that, man, I got three quick things for you, and then we're going to get into this interview, and then that's going to be the episode. So, uh, uh, man, I, 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 wish, I wish I had more. Here we go. Here, here are the things that I did find interesting, though. Lisa Murkowski, which, if the Trump era of the Republican Party holds, would be one of two very, very, very focused on senators her and Susan Collins because they are more likely to flip so Lisa Murkowski has said that she is uncomfortable with the idea that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has already said that the Republicans will be in full coordination with the White House on the Senate trial I mean again I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel here people because uh, this is what's going to happen. Get ready. This is the first of many. You're going to see a lot of these uh, moderate uh, Republicans do a little bit of hand-wringing. They're going to do a little dance, do a little two-step on, I don't know. Uh, he- heavy is the head that wears the crowd. Am I right, people? Is this thing on? Uh, they're going to do that. And then... One might vote on the articles of impeachment against Trump. One, maybe. If they really, really, really think that that's going to be advantageous to it. But I think they're all going to hold just because Donald Trump's so popular. So I think you're going to see the Mitt Romney's, the Susan Collins, the Lisa Murkowski's. They're going to do a lot of like, I'm very concerned. I'm taking this very seriously. This is a serious thing, folks. I'm serious here. Let's be serious. That's what I think you're going to see a lot of. And this is the beginning of it. If your Christmas dinner was a little extra spicy, it might be because the Trump campaign, the Trump 2020 campaign, published a website uh, over the last few days entitled www.snowflakevictory.com, offering supporters of the president talking points so they might... And I am going to quote here. Uh, This is from Politico. Trump's reelection campaign launched a new website on Christmas Eve designed to help their president's backers win an argument with liberal fans or friends and family members uh this is what Brad Parscale tweeted about it. We know the Christmas and holiday times. There's always that liberal snowflake relative who starts an argument and then runs and hides. Trump campaign manager uh, tweeted this year don't let them get away with it. And so I've brought my own liberal snowflake uh, here as a guest on the on the program. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, my wife Ashley Paramore. I'm a liberal snowflake. All right, so now uh, I'm gonna I've read the website. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to rebut any argument. So you go ahead and tell me your your argument about Donald Trump. My argument. I'm so non-confrontational during the holidays. I know, but you have to try. Okay. Um, Just criticize the president. So why are you okay with what's happening? Shut up, cuck. There we go. I mean, I gotta say, it gets results. <laughs> I mean, it's. I mean, you can't really argue with it. You can't really argue with success. Snowflakevictory.com. There we go. And finally, Michael Bloomberg. Uh, tell you what, he's lucky this one broke over the holidays because it would have been a lot bigger if everybody would have been at their desk. Uh, he uh, apparently used prison labor to make campaign calls. This, according to a report from The Intercept, uh, to which he, or, or his campaign rather, released a statement saying that earlier today, a news outlet reported that prison workers were being used by subcontractors to make telephone calls on behalf of my campaign. I'm not attacking the news. The story was fundamentally accurate. We only learned about this when the reporter called us, but as soon as we discovered which vendor subcontractor had done this, we immediately ended our relationship with the company and the people who hired them. Oh, my God. Can you imagine if this broke when it wasn't Christmas? The prison mic memes? That dude used prison labor. That's Ridiculous. All right, Uh, uh, that will be it for the news today. We now go to our interview. Diane Feldman is president of the Feldman Group, a national strategic and political research firm. She is a former Democratic pollster, and her writing can be read at uh, Diane Feldman on Twitter or her blog, viewfromthepearl.com. We welcome Diane. I'm glad to be here. All right, so polling. Very, very excited to talk about this because it is very obviously, especially now uh, uh, when we we don't have any actual caucuses or primaries as of yet, they're pretty much the only win condition there is in our very (laughs) hypercharged political (laughs) landscape. So let me ask you this. What's the most common misconception about creating or uh, 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 initiating a poll?
1: About initiating a poll, I think that the the importance of the sampling, I mean, what we have now for the primaries is there are, are national polls out there, which don't replicate the process of what's going to happen, which does pre- proceed state by state, and there are different rules by state, and there are the state-level polls, which I think can be um, more accurate in that there can be Uh, consideration of what the vote might look like and who, in fact, is eligible. And um, obviously, things are generally more accurate closer. Um, So I think that there's an inadequate attention to the sample itself and who is in the poll and the degree to which that may or may not actually represent who is going to vote.
0: And so sampling, if you could just give uh, for, for folks who are unfamiliar with the term, uh, uh, what is you know the, 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 the few sentence explanation of sampling?
1: Um, I guess the few sentence explanation is it, it I want to sort of go with the way it's supposed to be. And there are a lot of problems that have emerged in the last decade, really. Um, but in theory. Um, When you want to mirror what the population as a whole looks like, and in this case, the population would be people who are going to vote in a primary, and you have a genuinely random primary or caucus, uh, a genuinely random selection of people that with an adequate sample size, it should mirror within the margin of error what the actual population looks like. The problem with that is, I said, if you have a genuinely random selection. Um, I would define that as that everyone who is actually going to vote has an equal chance of being in your sample. Uh, That's not true. There are people who don't answer their phone. There are people who don't like to answer surveys. There are people who are easier to reach and harder to reach. And how you adjust for all of that and account for all of that becomes really important. And when we get to general elections, I think there are huge or bigger problems with it. But Um, is the the sample representative of what's going to happen geographically. I mean, in Iowa, um, there is a small vote in western Iowa, but it looks nothing like the vote in Polk County. You have the right geographic distribution, um, the right gender distribution, primaries are generally about 60% female, Um, and then the right age distribution, which, given that younger people are less likely to take polls, is probably the trickiest. But the reality is, is everybody's not equally likely to answer. And in a primary, we don't know what the turnout will be. So some mm. pollsters weight the data to their presumptions. What that means is if, if you are figuring that 20% of the um, vote will be people under age 35 and only, only 15% of your sample is under age 35, you upweight it. You count that fifteen percent as if they were twenty percent, and there are some dangers in that. The more you wait, the bigger the dangers. Um, the other is that you just keep calling until you have um, a representative sample. That if you think it's fifteen percent, you keep calling till you get fifteen percent. That's the more expensive procedure and the less used procedure. And then of course there's the potential error that your assumption about what percent of the of the a vote was under 35 to begin with, could be wrong. So all of those judgments get made in producing the poll these days and and not always reported, sometimes reported, but not always reported.
0: Yeah, I mean, because – when when you look, I mean, let's say you go to a site like Real Clear Politics or something like that, you can find all these methodologies as the polls are coming out. But they they certainly have not found a popular synthesis in the way that like polling aggregates have become very commonplace in political coverage. You don't see a ton of uh, second or third paragraphs in a news story talking about the sampling in that poll.
1: No, no. Sampling tends not to be a particularly newsworthy topic, and I'm very, very glad that you're covering it on the podcast for that reason, but it's in fact a really important topic in judging the the potential accuracy of the poll. And look, the reality is no one knows who's going to vote, so there can't really be, and nor should there really be, a common model or a common assumption about something we don't know the answer to, but it is a difference between polls and how they Um, handle it is a difference among polls as well. And, and so I wish that they did more reporting. Most of the national polls um, simply ask people whether they're Democrats, Republicans or independents. And if they're independents, they lean democratic and how likely they are to vote in the primary. Um, And, and, and that's all. And so in one sense, it's more open and you can get people included who may not vote in the primary, but you're less likely to exclude people who vote in the primary now there are still states that only allow you to vote if you're registered as a democrat and so obviously in those states the 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 leaning question is wrong and it's very often the case that you get far more people who say they're going to vote than who actually do so you know i think that that is a a a questionable sampling frame although my main concern with the national polls is it's not a national process there's no national primary and it gets impacted by the early states, But, uh, even with that notion of not really sampling state by state, you know, that, um, um, I'm not sure that they're all careful about the regional distribution. It's easier to reach people in suburbs than in urban or rural areas. And, um, so there are lots of things that can go into whether the sample is an accurate portrayal, uh, if you look at it on average, you know, it ends to not be way off, but it can be uh, in a close election off enough that it can be misleading.
0: All right. Before we get to how people should be processing, especially polls this early in the process and earlier than this over the last summer, I, I want to ask about something, you know, uh, that's happening now, because you mentioned that national polls are a curious thing because they are theoretically polling for an event that will not happen there is no national mm-hmm. uh, primary and we have a very interesting polling discrepancy now where your national front runner Joe Biden who is uh, anywhere between you know 8 and 15 points ahead of, of his clearest uh, or nearest rival in national polls is coming in second or third and sometimes fourth in the states that actually vote. As somebody who's, you know, created these polls and looks at these polls for a living, what are we supposed to make of that?
1: I, I, I think that, and we can, we're can we going to discuss the use of polls in a moment because I actually question whether there's a lot of uh, public service value in having these polls out there at this stage, but that's we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Yeah. I, I, I think what you make of that is that, you know in if you're in Iowa or New Hampshire or South Carolina or Nevada there are people actively campaigning in those states there are ads on the air there are people going door to door the candidates are there and the level of attention is much much higher uh so i, I don't i have no idea it's still till february 3rd who will win um Iowa or the other early states but i don't actually think the national polls are very meaningful at this point because it's an electorate that, in many cases, won't vote, and in other cases, just is at a different level of attention than in early states. And it will all be framed by our states. You know, I, I vote here in Mississippi, and by the time we get to the Mississippi primary, it'll be a different field. There are people who will yeah. have dropped out. I'm so, <laughs> so excited!
0: I'm so excited when I have smart people on this show, and you and, and you agree with my opinion because I cannot agree with you more. <laughs> I just think it well,
1: is. That yeah,
0: it, it is It is so <laughs> ridiculous to think that if Biden places in third in Iowa and, and New Hampshire, or even second, that that's not, A, going to affect how the race is covered, and B, affect how Biden is running. Like, like that, that right. it would be unlike Absolutely. any other presidential campaign in history mm-hmm. if they didn't try to course correct on some level.
1: Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. Now, I will just say on the Biden subject, I think that many of us, myself included— have underestimated his staying power and underestimated his strength. So I don't want my skepticism of polls to come across as oh, sure. skepticism of the Biden strength. I think in the end, at this point, it could come down to Biden and somebody and who the somebody is, is unknown um, uh, or Biden and two somebodies. And then it all is going to reconfigure again. So I think that that actually, um, underlines what you just said that we don't even know who the field is for most of the later voting states uh but who the field is is going to matter a lot
0: all right so let's get to exactly how valuable some of these polls really are uh obviously they have become more and more of a part of our political landscape polls have always driven political media coverage but now with more political media coverage than ever that obviously is magnified and we saw specifically it had its like supernova moment in, in 2012, the, 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 the dawn of the polling aggregate sites that, uh, you know, with Nate mm-hmm. silver and five thirty eight, uh and now uh, everybody seemingly has one of these uh, right. number crunching kind of wings to their coverage, but how valuable is it?
1: Well, I want to, I want to distinguish um, two things. One is to distinguish polling and research because there are, Many, many kinds of political research, many of which are underutilized. Um, and so uh, when we talk about polling, I'm talking about polling very specifically and not the array of other kinds of research. And then for value, there's the strategic value and the news value. Um, and, uh, those are also different questions. So if you're talking about polling that is re- horse race polling that is released to the public, Mm -hmm. Um, I personally don't think that it is productive, um, that, uh, it, it, it solves people's curiosity. Uh, it does create news stories, but there are many other news stories that could be covered and created. I don't think we're going to give it up because people like paying attention to who's ahead and who's not. Uh, but I don't, I don't frankly think that it does much for the public discourse, the horse race polling. Some of the other polling about what are people thinking, what are they feeling, what are their attitudes about who the next president should be? Do they want someone who's a strong central figure or do they care more about electability or or where someone falls on an ideological spectrum? I think where it's reflective of what voters are thinking and feeling, that that has value because we're still in a democracy and what voters think is ultimately all important, but the horse race polling, I have a hard time arguing that it has any value at all except to create a news story. And there are other ways to create news stories. Now on the strategic front, which is most of what I did was within campaigns of polls that weren't released. Um, Again, I think where it is, telling a candidate hey this is what people are thinking so you ought to be able to address that 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 certainly has value it is however a strategic tool of the television age and not of the internet age and as we pass from the television age to the internet age i think it has less and less strategic value uh Uh, the, the,
0: the 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 internal campaign polls have less of a strategic value
1: as we move from television to Internet, they still have value. I think to yeah. be able to say as a whole, voters in your state think X uh, is an important thing to be able to say to a candidate. But as a guide to communications, I don't think that they are this, as valuable uh, in guiding online communications because we're talking about an aggregate. Um, we're not talking about the groups of people who pay attention to specific things online and may or may not pay attention to politics
0: and how we reach them. Would that be because television obviously is kind of a, a, a big blanket message. You put one message out that's going to appeal to the most amount of people, whereas the internet has unlimited bandwidth and you can appeal to every little niche of your coalition more quickly and cheaper. I think that's,
1: I think that's part of it, but I also think it's just a completely different medium, and that, that television, you have something of a of a captive audience if, if, if they're watching commercial television, which is not going to grow as an audience, but if someone's watching commercial television and an ad comes on, they generally watch the ad. It's, yeah. The television's still on. It's a um, in that sense, it's an intrusive medium. It is a participatory medium. It does, you know, they pay more attention if it, it's an emotional ad than a less emotional ad. So it's, I don't want to suggest that it, people are passive about it, but, they, but it is an intrusive medium. The Internet isn't. Uh, it, you know, that you have an virtually unlimited number of things that you can look at. Uh, you can skip ads. Uh, you can go searching for something that interests you. So it it is a harder medium because it requires people to engage the 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 audience uh, to get them to pay attention to what it is that they have to say, and that um, uh, that calls for a completely different kind of advertising. Frankly,
0: uh, that's that's fascinating. Can I ask you a question in your work as a consultant doing internal polls what is the uh, i'm trying to figure out a way to phrase this like uh, how do you deliver bad news like it's because i would assume that part of it part of your your job would be delivering uh you know the the facts on the ground in a campaign structure where very often you have to be kind of surrounded by true believers
1: uh, two believers in the candidate or two believers yeah, in, the, in, the poll- in the candidate, you know, everybody's working <laughs> yeah. so
0: hard to, to I, yeah, push I, forward. People, th- th-
1: th- pollsters have personalities. I honestly don't think that people have hired me who want a good news pollster um, <laughs> just the nature of how I end up presenting. So I have not had any problem telling people, um, bad news or telling people, um, you know, voters have a problem with you or they disagree with you on this. I, I honestly think that at least my clients expected that of me.
0: Sure. So that I guess that would be my next question is, uh, uh, is that always well received? <laughs> have, have you? I mean, is there a even if you're trying to be as blunt as possible, uh, is is there a, a shell you need to break through sometimes?
1: sometimes um yeah. but i i I think, as i said i I think that at least the clients that hired me hired me to tell them what I really thought, yeah, um and they they all they all knew I had a personality that was going to do that and that was not for the most part unduly optimistic. There are a couple of occasions where I was unduly optimistic, but um so i I, I really didn't have a problem, and it's I'm not telling them that I think this I'm telling them this is where voters are. And um, so, you know, it's not quite as personal as if if I don't think they ever felt attacked by me. I think they did on occasion feel they were not connected to voters. And that's my job to tell
0: them that. So
1: I don't think it was ever really problematic.
0: Oh, sure. Sure. But I mean, certainly it's like uh, uh, that. that, It seems like it could be a a high pressure situation, uh, uh, which is fascinating (laughs) to me
1: it can be and there are you know there are certainly one or two that thought that I only thought that cuz the poll was wrong and and uh you know so that that has happened but rarely honestly uh
0: all right so so let's get back to the, a general public's understanding of polling because specifically uh you know after the 2016 election there seemed to be this this uh, line of thought that the you know the polls were wrong and and partly That was uh, due to high profile outlets like, you know, upshot from the New York Times, a polling uh, aggregate that that had uh, a very plain, you know, like 93 percent chance for a Hillary victory and 7 percent chance for Trump. And then obviously on Election Day, that that did not bear out. Uh, How Mm -hmm. much do you think uh, the media is responsible for some of that backlash? How much do you think pollsters are responsible and how much is this just totally fabricated
1: I don't, I don't think I can divide it up that way I mean okay. uh, yes the polls were wrong and some of them were more wrong than others and and there's there's I think very little argument about that. I think the reason um, why they were wrong first of all it was a very close election Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote so mm-hmm. those polls that showed her nationally winning by just a little were in fact not wrong. Um, in that she did get just a little more popular vote than Trump did. Uh, the, so I, I think that it's it, you can argue that at least some of the national polls were not really off. Um, some of the state-level polling was way off, but not all polling is of equal quality. The error that was very frequently made, uh, and uh, you know, I plead guilty in a couple of cases to this being true of my polls as well, uh, was not being careful enough about the percent of the electorate that were uh, had no college experience and the percent of the electorate that were four-year college graduates. Uh, and of course, there's a middle ground in there with, with some college. Uh, college graduates are more likely to take polls than people with no mm-hmm. college experience. Um, it's not an absolute number that you know exactly goes back to our sampling discussion exactly how many um in each sort of bucket of of level of college education there is in a particular electorate but it is pretty clear that there was inadequate coverage and sampling of people with no college experience uh and that was an enormous vote for trump and so where that was true uh the electorate was you know the the poll was was off uh, so I think that was the biggest statistical error. Uh, and then, look, I think there was a uh, a presumption that people would not elect Trump, that it's not where the country was. And that, frankly, is both the media and the pollsters I think, just really didn't quite understand the depth of anger that was reflected in the Trump vote uh, and are both responsible. Uh, and then you know, we can talk about the media bias factors, but that's Sorry. not yeah. something that I am particularly an expert on, and you could have someone on to do that. So um, I think that, that it wasn't a massive misjudgment because she did win the popular vote, and that is what polls showed. But there were clearly quite, quite a few polls that were off rather significantly, and I think that's largely because of the undersampling of, of white voters with no college experience
0: let me ask you just could it happen again
1: yes it could okay all right hold on yeah (laughs) let me me,
0: let's stick let's stick there then for a second (laughs) how many of these lessons have been acted upon in the intervening four years
1: i think that one has been but look once again we're going to have an election we don't know what the turnout looks like we do know that the basic assumptions of random sampling yes work and work statistically but we're no longer sampling at random so uh You know, we we are all sampling to some uh, presumed model of the electorate. And if that presumed model of the electorate is wrong, the poll will be wrong. And that is very different than in the 1960s, 1970s, and 1980s, when you really were sampling at random. You're not anymore. You're sampling to a model or an assumption. And if there's a variable that matters, like college education, that you're not dealing with adequately, the poll will be
0: wrong. So is the reason why we rely more and more on those models is because it's harder and harder to get a full spectrum of the electorate on, you know, like landlines primarily, but also, you know, cell phones have prov- proven to be less reliable. The internet has its own problems. Is that why you have to rely it's, more yeah, on, the, on the Yeah, it's response bias. Gotcha. Yeah.
1: There was a, there was back in the 60s, 70s and 80s, um, you could call phone numbers at random, and more than 80% of the phone numbers that were good phone numbers and somebody answered, they took the poll. Wow. Uh, and yeah, <laughs> and um, Pew has actually a chart of what the uh, response rate to polling has been, and I, I they have it down in the single digits, and I think that's true. So it's not that you can't do it accurately when the response rate is down in the single digits, but you're not doing it the same way. Um, And it does require a level of assumptions about the electorate that a truly random sample from the olden days does not.
0: So then let me ask you a question. If part of this is a straining uh, against new technology and trying to invent ways to correct the uh, less and less signal that comes in to be more representative— is there just a better way to do polling that we have not seen in, in national practice yet?
1: Well, I think it's, frankly, you do have to ask yourself, what is the value of that aggregate picture? Um, yeah. it, it is, yes, you want to know who's going to win. The campaign wants to know who's going to win. Um, party committees like the DSCC or the Republican Senate committee want to know who's going to win when they're, when they're investing. So, you know, it's, it's not like that question is not a value. I, I the analytics can not doesn't usually because they make assumptions too. Um, but really sophisticated and thorough analytics could, um, do a better job answering those questions on the message level and the, what are people thinking? I think campaigns need to be clearer on what their strategic question is. And then there's a whole array of ways to answer, um, that, uh, you know, where you you can self-test on the internet. It's easy to figure out what engages people by sending out some things you think will and seeing what does. Um, and um, uh, everyone is doing uh, fields where they go door to door. You can show people material. You can get their input. Uh, there's a lot of different ways of collecting information about what's on people's minds. In, in-depth individual interviews, which are not quantitative um, but nonetheless tell you a lot about what people are really thinking about the candidate about the issues qualitative techniques like focus groups so I think that, that it's about being clear what question you're trying to ask uh, and then there is a technique for figuring it out the one piece that people are still looking for polling to do to predict who's going to win it's honestly not very good at um, and I think there are other techniques there as well but it's it, it, it's Polling for a while is a one-size-fits-all answers all questions methodology, and I think there needs to be divergence in the methodologies that that um, political campaigns are using.
0: You know, I, I think that that's a <laughs> it's a wise thing because <laughs> uh, obviously we have mm-hmm. new new and different ways to to interact with it now. So. Uh, mm-hmm. It makes sense that that, that, would, that that menu would widen out. Uh, let, let me ask you a question about kind of your, your business. You are a Democratic pollster. Uh, I've always kind of wondered. Is I that... was. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a former Democratic
1: pollster. Former, I, I former. Yeah. gave
0: up my business and
1: now do a little of this and that. So, so mostly uh, retired and this and that.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, and talking to friendly podcasts those, like myself, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when you look at a Democratic pollster versus a Republican pollster. Is that uh, how much of it is your familiarity with the demographics that very obviously vote for one party or another, and how much of it is just you know you wind up getting hired by this by one party's sides of the campaign because theoretically the job is the same, right?
1: Theoretically, I don't really know very many Republican pollsters. Uh, I I do think there there is a tendency, I don't, know that, I don't know that I'm about to say is an accurate statement, but I think it may be. Um, I think that most of the Democratic pollsters came in through a political process because they were interested in politics, because they um, have an ideological point of view or set of issue commitments, um, and usually some kind of academic background. I think they are less likely to have come in through a business background. Um, okay. And I think that it is true that the Republican pollsters are more likely to, and then very few pollsters are do politics only, and so who their other clients are also I suspect colors um, their perceptions of the world, and uh, both on both Democratic and Republican pollsters have business clients often, and Democrats also have union clients, and so I think there's a that that ends up mattering, but the techniques are the
0: same yeah it's always yeah it, it's just been one of those things that i've always kind of wondered like oh i wonder why that something that theoretically is is a, a similar trade has that uh, cleavage in the middle mm-hmm. uh all right well uh that that kind of brings us to the end uh i, I want to uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us here on the program and i want to remind everybody once again that if you would like to read all of the awesome writings, uh, you can go to at Diane Feldman on Twitter or view from the pearl.com. Uh, uh, but this has been so enlightening. Thank you so much, Diane. And thank you so much for having me on. And that will wrap it up for us today. I want to thank our Titanic $10 tier squids, mixtape, Jamie, Ryan, Adam, Jonathan, DeLazer, Andy, Ball, Mike, and Brad. If you want to join them, you can head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Of course, my brand new history podcast, Raise the Dead, has its fourth episode out. Only two more to go after this one. And I really, really, really like this episode. This is all about the 1960 Democratic Convention. We got some skullduggery, some gossip, some lying, some backstabbing careers on the line go ahead and check it out you might also feel empathy for Ted Cruz trigger warning you can always email me the young American at gmail.com and you can support us at takepoliticsseriously.com. follow me on all channels at Justin R young Twitter Instagram Snapchat but until next time this is your old pal jury saying Merry Christmas And some shows talk about politics. Others talk about politics. And still more, they talk about politics, but this is the only show that talks about oh.